Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Historically, computers haven't been particularly good at determining user intent from real-world language inputs. But with the explosive growth of ChatGPT and other natural language processing technologies, AI systems are achieving unprecedented new levels of accuracy in responding to human queries. In this episode, Amit Prakash, co-founder and CTO of ThoughtSpot, shares his thoughts on the evolution of AI and the responsibility needed to make it ready for everyday use. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Amit, welcome to the opening episode of season four of The Data Chief. Thank you. Longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> I know. So tell everyone where you're joining from today. Uh, so I'm joining from my home in Saratoga, California. Okay, a beautiful place, nice wine country, sunny, sunny there often. And Amit, you know, normally when we have a guest on the data chief, I start by asking a little bit about your background, what you do, but I know that you can be a little humble. So I'm not going to start there. <laughs> um, I feel like I have to warm you up with some lightning round questions. So, and we will come back to some other lightning rounds. So Amit, when you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, so I, I wanted to be a scientist. I, I <laughs> my, my father, I uh, was a professor of civil engineering and uh, kind of growing up, there was always conversations about sort of research and things like that. So, um, yeah, I like if you had asked me in grade four or five, what do you want to be? I would have said scientist of some sort. Scientist. Well, you kind of are doing some scientific work yeah. here. Um, all right. And then it's a Friday night in Saratoga. What's your favorite drink? These days, it's mostly been coffee. My favorite pandemic purchase was espresso machine. <laughs> and I've been learning to be a barista oh, very for nice. the family. So. Oh, that's nice. But on a Friday night, doesn't that keep you awake? I don't know. I, coffee used to be my evening drink, and now I've given it up. So <laughs> not much left there, I guess. <laughs> I, okay. I also understand in the pandemic, you took up some serious bike riding. So what would be one of your favorite trails or places to bike ride? Actually, there's a, there's a beautiful trail here in Saratoga that I try to do at least four or five times a week um, that goes up to uh, Villa, Villa Montalvo, and it's just 10 miles loop from my home. So I love that. Uh, we, some of us at work, um, did a bike ride to Mount Hamilton, which was like a grueling 38-mile bike ride with 5,000 feet elevation. And that was the most that I've ever done. So I was very proud of that. 
That is impressive. And even you're, I did not realize you do this five times a week. And even I'm picturing Saratoga is not flat. It's very hilly. So that is quite a workout. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a good 40, 50 minute workout for me. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I want to say maybe I should try that next time I'm in the Bay Area, but I know I won't be able to do it. So forget it. <laughs> so let's get back to something that I know I can do. Tell us a little bit about your role as the CTO and take us back in time. What was the problem that you were trying to solve when you first co-founded ThoughtSpot? Yeah. So uh, me and Ajit started talking about this problem back in 2012. This was maybe February or something. And what we saw was that analytics was absolutely one of the top things that enterprises were worrying about in terms of growing their footprint, being more data-driven. And the tools had improved, but they left a lot to be desired. When we talked to a lot of different business users, what we realized was that when they have a question from their data that is not already being answered by one of the reports or dashboards, it was taking them anywhere from a week to a month and in some cases, even six months to get back the answer. And I, I was coming from Google where we had so much data and we were so used to kind of making data-driven decisions every day where you have an intuition and you go and ask the question and get back the answer immediately and move on. And I, I feel like um, all the progress that happened in Google, both in search and uh, ads during sort of the years that I was there in preceding years, a lot of the secret sauce was just being able to move fast in a data-driven fashion. And so, so we saw a lot of potential in making it possible uh, for any enterprise to be able to just ask a question of their data, get an answer and move on without having to wait for someone else to uh, you know, build a report or a dashboard for you. And, and so that, that was the original vision. Um, obviously, easier said than done. And so we started exploring different solutions. And after a lot of iterations, we converged on this sort of Google-like interface where you could just go and ask the question and we would interpret the question, turn that into SQL, and then bring back a data visualization. That was kind of the starting point aha moment for the company. Obviously, from then on, it has evolved a lot into a much bigger product that does a lot more than that. For sure. And that's so on the Data Chief podcast, we don't often, even though ThoughtSpot sponsors the podcast, we don't often speak about the product and the technology. But the reason why I wanted you to be a guest on the show is because there's no escaping the headlines from Chat GPT now. It's just everywhere. I am seeing it in every media outlet, even nothing to do with tech. And yet, so there's a lot of excitement, a lot of confusion. And I, I think we need to explain and bring a little more color why and how you are such an expert in this category of large language models. So take us back even further, pre-ThoughtSpot, pre-Google, and I think we have to go further back. I've seen some of your academic papers. When did you first start looking at this category? 
So right after finishing my PhD, I joined a small team inside of Microsoft that was beginning to build a search engine that eventually became uh, Bing. So it, it had many names uh, over the years, MSN Search, Live Search, and stuff like that. But when I joined, there was a small team, there was no product, and we were just kind of um, building a new search engine. Uh, and that that was when I really started looking at the space of NLP and um, started playing around with neural networks and language models and uh, really understanding sort of computational language understanding for the first time. And that was probably 2003 or so. Okay, so 20 years ago, and it's it's search, but it's also the role that neural networks play here. And maybe explain a little bit why this matters. What does good look like and why this matters when you're analyzing text or trying to phrase a question? Yeah, so traditionally, search engines have been purely what we call information retrieval engines. And the idea there is that when when you type a set of words in the search engine, what you're doing is basically looking for documents that contains those words. And the the more times the word is there, the better it is. And the more infrequent the word is, the, the more significance it carries. And that's sort of the old search engine model. And, and then you mix in the reputation of that document based on things like page rank and stuff. So that was kind of the early days of search engines. What this model misses is the context in which a word arises, right? So if I search for Jaguar, um, it could be the animal Jaguar, it could be the car Jaguar. But if I say something like a 2023 model of Jaguar, now it's very clear that I'm talking about the car. So every word really um, changes its meaning and its context. And it's not just the search query, but also the documents you're looking through where what is the context in which these words are occurring and, and what is really the, the concept that's being expressed in the document and how does it match to the query? And that, that's kind of the ultimate relevance question for search engines is that the question is being asked. It's not just um, sort of words. It, it's a very specific intent behind the question and can you match that intent with the intent behind the document that you're going to bring up? And both of these things are deeply related to language understanding. And typically, computers haven't been really good at understanding language and the real intent behind it because there's a lot of world knowledge that's necessary to really interpret what's being said in a text. Yeah, so that's helpful. So basic search um, it's easy to count the occurrences of a word, but harder is that context. Do I really mean a car or do I really mean an animal? And so that is having to look at how the sentence was structured, where these things even maybe ap appeared. Did I see a jaguar in Africa in 2023 versus the 2023 Jaguar clearly means the model of the car. Um, that sounds really difficult. So you started on this at Microsoft. Tell us a little bit more then about your work at Google. 
Yeah. So at Google, um, I was leading a team that was responsible for both building machine learning infrastructure and building machine learning models that predict the probability of someone liking an ad and clicking it. As you know, most of Google's revenue comes from people clicking on ads. And so in a given context, being able to pick absolutely the best ads that actually someone is going to interact with and find the content useful is absolutely critical to Google's business. And so our job was to predict as accurately as possible um, when somebody is going to click on an ad and what is the probability that somebody is going to click on an ad. And based on that, the entire auction process runs and ads get selected. Uh, this was a really, really interesting um, sort of a dream job for an engineer because A, at the time, we were seeing a few billion interactions a day um, at Google. Now that number is probably much larger. And so, so you had a really large amount of training data coming in, in a really large space of different advertisers, different publishers, different queries. The accuracy really mattered. So if, if you improved the accuracy of these models by a couple of percent, you had the potential to increase entire Google's revenue by a couple of percent and, and vice versa. And uh, nobody else was training machine learning models at this scale or even like one-tenth or one-hundredth the scale at which this thing was being done. So, so a lot of my work was a building sort of powerful distributed systems that could run learning algorithms super fast and, and train lots of different models. And the other part of the work was essentially building hypotheses around how can a piece of data give me more information about whether somebody will actually like this ad or not. So an example could be that there's certain topics that have affinity to each other. So like one example used to be that people who are checking um, sports scores on internet are more likely to click on beer ads or <laughs> um, for some reason, <laughs> um, the lower was yeah. that people who read Economic Times tend to click on Volvo ads <laughs> for some reason. So, so you could go and... Um, sort of build these kinds of topic correlations and add that as a feature into the model. And lo and behold, um, the accuracy of the model goes up. Although I should say that like, it was only like one in five or one in 10 of the intuition that you would have and you go test it would turn out to be true. So a lot of it was generating hypothesis, testing it, and then seeing if it actually improves the model accuracy. Yeah. So this sounds super fun. Lots of data lots of innovation um, and business impact. So are you allowed to share like for 1% improvement in your model, what the revenue impact would have been at that time or, or what you think that would be now? The revenue numbers at the time were public and it's like in tens of billions. And, and so you could do the math, like if there's a 1% improvement, what that amounts to and the interesting thing is that these numbers were additive. So, so one quarter you, you do some work and you improve the revenue numbers by a percent. That number stays for future, not just like one-time improvement that, that is just kind of increase the recurring revenue by 1%. And, and you do this kind of work quarter over quarter, the impact sort of piles up. 
And so I think easily hundreds of millions, possibly billions in terms of the impact yeah. of that machine learning. Huge, huge. And, and I think what's also interesting is this nuance between search and natural language and it coming together now. Um, so you already referred to search as being the accuracy. Tell us a little bit about the difference with true natural language processing and the role that large language models are playing here. Yeah, so being able to understand the intent behind a sentence, a body of text, and, and um, being able to do things with that meaning in terms of being able to translate it into different language, summarize it, or take a request and act upon it, like take a query and do something or generate code. All of these things people have been trying to do for a long time. The accuracy of these things, if you look at the last couple of years or maybe last three, four years, there's been a dramatic, almost phase shift in our ability to do these tasks. And um, the forefront of these innovations is this particular neural network architecture called Transformer that paper got published in 2017. And ever since, people have been training larger and larger versions of these Transformer neural networks that try to do language modeling. And the idea of language modeling is basically you're given prefix of a text and you're supposed to guess what words come after. So if I say the dog in the next word, you were to think what it would be, you would think maybe it barked or ran or jumped or something like that. So, so you would have some idea of what that next word might be based on the context. And if I give you some more text that I was in the park and my dog and then dash, then you have a little bit more context of, okay, what would the dog do in the park, right? So the idea of language modeling is that I give you a prefix of text and then you guess what the next word is going to be. And so these transform models are basically being trained to predict the next word by feeding all the text that's available on internet. And um, what has happened, and it really took everyone by surprise, including the people who invented it, is that these language models are not just guessing probabilistically what the next word is going to be, but the combination of predicting next word and the next word is producing a body of text that is showing a level of reasoning and intelligence that has never been seen in any other AI system before. And using these things, you can, you can do much better translation, much better summarization, much, much better question answering than ever before. And, and it's just the, the level of accuracy that you see is a step change from where it was before. Yeah. So, so you said it's caught people by surprise. And I go back to, I think it was October, correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, where you were presenting on NLP at a visualization conference. Yeah. Was anyone even really excited or talking about chat GPT there? This was a group of researchers. And, and so people knew about it and everyone was tinkering around. But that sense of excitement that you see today and sort of this idea being completely exploded in the public sphere, that certainly wasn't there at all. So for a lot of people, 
the, the specific problem in SAP application was kind of new. There was few people playing around with GPT in doing natural language generation. But yeah, it, it was it was absolutely a niche back in August or October whenever I gave that talk. And it wasn't something that a lot of people were thinking about. Yeah. So what changed? What's made it explode? Is it is it the cloud computing um, with Microsoft backing, unlimited access to Azure? Or is it what else? What what why now? What's made it explode now? GPD is a family of models. Um, when GPD one came out, it was certainly interesting, but it wasn't nearly as smart. When GPT two came out, it got a lot of people excited, uh, but still mostly among the people who track these kinds of technologies. And then GPT-3 came out with a much better, much more sophisticated model. The problem with these models was that they were essentially language models in the sense that they were just trained to predict the next word. And as you scale them, they they get more and more intelligent about reasoning, but they're also not very sophisticated in terms of producing always giving meaningful results so so that it can it can give you answers that could be insensitive or just downright unethical because it, it's learning from all the text that exists on the internet and and as you know there's a lot of hate speech out there and so people yeah. were not um, that excited about it and one of the interesting things that OpenAI did was they they fine-tuned this model to learn from human feedback. So so there's an army of people that they have deployed who look at the responses produced by these models and then say, okay, this these are probabilistic responses. So if you ask them four times, um, the model will produce four different responses. And they'll say, okay, this fourth one was actually better than the first one because the first one had hate speech or something like that. Or, or they might even give their own response saying like the question to this response should have been something like this, not what you produced. And then what they did was that they took these preferences and based on that, they trained another model that will predict how a human would respond in terms of their preference to an output from GPT. And then using that model, now they produced a lot of training data for GPT to be fine-tuned because the problem was that you could get textual data in petabytes from internet uh, but you couldn't get label data in petabytes from internet. So, so they scale human feedback by training another model and then using that model as the teacher for this model. And so that improved the quality of the responses substantially. And then the next thing that they did, which was actually, if you think about it, is really, really simple, but really impactful. So the older version of these models were put in an interface where you, you give the prefix and ask the model to generate it and just give you some text. And then if you have another question, then you ask another question and give you some text. So it's not very conversational, it's transactional. And they made it conversational by saying that like, if you're in a session, whatever question you asked and whatever answer that GPT gives, behind the scenes, they'll put that in the prompt. And so, so now you could have a conversation, you could ask a question and then ask a follow-up question and so on. And the model will respond as if it knows all, all of the context. The combination of 
that UX and that improvement made it really, really accessible for the common public. And the last thing is, is the investment from Microsoft and the Azure collaboration and things like that, because these models are still very, very big and very expensive to run. And so being able to just put it out there for everyone to play, OpenAI is essentially burning a lot of money, having people just play with it. Play with it, but it's also feeding yeah. their learning yeah, yeah. and their model. We're like free workers for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It definitely gives them both the mind share of being sort of an early mover, and it gives them a lot of training data. And in exchange, they're essentially footing the bill of the cloud cost of running these models. So we'll see. Yeah, it's almost like a brilliant form of crowdsourcing. Yeah. And and we've talked a lot about chat GPT, but that's not the only game in town. Google's been a little quieter. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit, what are the other large language models that you're tracking or excited about? Yeah. So there are a number of them that are very interesting. So um, there is Bloom from Hugging Face, which is actually a collaboration of a lot of academicians around the world. And they've trained a model that's similar in size to ChatGPT. And the good thing about Bloom is that the model is out there for anyone to download and run. Obviously, it's, it's not available as a service where you could just go and play with it without having the compute to run the inference. Um, so, so that's why it's not catching up as much in popularity. But for if you want to be able to inspect the weights inside the model or just run the model yourself, that's great. Google has a model that they call Palm, and it's actually three times larger in the parameter size than GPT-3. If I were to believe what I hear from my friends at Google, it's actually more sophisticated and is able to do a lot more things than what ChatGPT is doing. But Google hasn't published that model or put that model in a place where everyone could access. I'm hoping that they will soon figure it out, how, how to release it. The, this, they have sort of safety concerns and compute cost concerns and all these things that they need to work out before they can expose it to the world. So they've been taking some baby steps in that direction, but it will be absolutely exciting to see that come out as well. A lot of innovation, and you mentioned the safety concerns, and I, I want to just at least go back. What's the degree of accuracy for any, any one of these models, would you say, now? So that's, that's a really tricky question because it, it really depends on the kind of task that you're using it for. So, for example, we at Thoughtspot care a lot about its code generation capabilities, in particular SQL code generation capabilities, right? So I've been playing around with it, and it, it varies a lot based on the kind of real-world complexity you throw at the model. If you put in like a simple 10-column table with a few rows and ask questions that don't have a lot of ambiguities in them, it's actually doing a fantastic job of gen taking the question and generating the right SQL for it. Every once in a while, it gets it wrong, but I would say it's as good as like 80, 90% accurate. Okay. 
when you bring in sort of more complex data sets that, that actually exist out there in the real world that I see sort of customers using it, whether it's their CRM data, whether it's their procurement data or their finance data and things like that. If you just simply rely on the GPT models, um, the accuracy drops quite a bit. In fact, you're lucky if you get one in four questions right out of these models. Yeah. It actually surprised me in a way that the CEO of OpenAI, um, Sam Altman, actually said he would not recommend using it yet for anything really important. Does that surprise you or do you agree with that? So the way I think of ChatGPT or that family of large language models, it's kind of like we've got a new element on the periodic table. And yes, that could be a radioactive substance and it could explode in your hands if you don't handle it properly. But it absolutely opens up the opportunity to experiment and combine it with other elements and build products that were just not possible before. And so, so that's what we see and that's what we're so thrilled about is that in and of itself, I wouldn't put it in a product that's um, where the accuracy is important. But if you combine it with other elements and use it cautiously, then you can absolutely build new products that were just not possible to build before. Okay, so you're excited about it. And as the moderator here, I have to ask the hard questions. Yeah. And one of our partners in the modern data stack actually asked me, will chat GPT kill ThoughtSpot? <laughs> well, <laughs> why are you laughing? I didn't laugh. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Why do you think that? Tell me more. <laughs> so I, I can definitely appreciate where that person may be coming from, which is kind of at a distance of 30,000 feet, if you look at it, one of the innovations that's been absolutely sort of the cornerstone for ThoughtSpot is its ability to expose an interface where business users could ask the questions in the language that they would be comfortable in and get answers without having to deal with sort of request queues where somebody is overworked and they're waiting for months or weeks to get the answer. And if there was this sort of this magical interface where anybody could just go and ask questions and get their answers without needing ThoughtSpot's core technology, then yes, it would potentially be a threat for ThoughtSpot. There are a number of other things that we do well, um, but it would challenge our differentiation in the market. Uh, but that's, that's not where the world is. And in particular, one of the things that uh, we've realized working on this for so long is that, number one, trust is so, so important in the data space. You cannot put a product in front of people that's supposed to answer data questions and it gets it wrong every so often. Yeah, even... Headline article in the Wall Street Journal, ChatGPT can't even do basic math. Like two times three hundred <laughs> is five hundred. Like I thought, I thought that was an easy question. It can fail in surprising ways, and and the the other thing is that all of this 
reasoning capabilities that we are seeing in GPT, it wasn't designed into it. It's it's just something that we discovered almost like a happy accident that you train a model to predict the next word and the next word. And if you make these models big enough, all of a sudden they start doing reasoning and they start doing math and they start summarizing and things like that, which is absolutely fantastic. But you have to be very cautious about introducing something like that into product. So so accuracy is one thing. Then the second thing is that what we do for our customers is we give them sort of the two sides of the coin where one side is absolute democratization and access, but the other side is governance and control because no one wants to deploy a tool to their business users where when someone asks a question about revenue, they get sort of one interpretation of revenue and they go to ask somebody else and they get different interpretation of revenue or somebody is getting answers to questions from the data they're not supposed to see and things like that, right? So so being able to model data correctly, being able to pre-specify how tables are going to be joined for certain class of questions, how certain metrics are going to be interpreted, how security is going to be implemented is absolutely key to do something like this in the enterprise space. And then the third thing is that a lot of the knowledge necessary to be able to answer data questions within the enterprise context is locked inside the enterprise. That GPT was trained on data that was publicly available. It it doesn't have access to information. So as we're working with an airline company and they have two metrics. One is called A0, the other one is called D0. A0 is supposed to be average arrival um, delay for a segment of flight. D0 is supposed to be average departure delay for a segment of flight. And so when they ask the question, what's A0 for DFW? The interpretation for DFW is that it's Dallas-Fort Worth Airport as the arrival airport. But when they ask what's the D0 for DFW, the interpretation for DFW changes to departure airport. Now, this is not a piece of information that you'll find out there on internet. And so, so GPT just does not have that information. So it cannot answer those questions. And so our task as product builders is to say, okay, we've got a new element in the periodic table that can do some interesting things. How do I take those interesting things, integrate that into my product in a safe way and build a much better experience than before to our customers, but still maintain that safety, that governance, that trust, all of that in a way that it's still a product that people get a delight from and don't get a nasty surprise. And in that sense, ChatGPT has not threatened us at all. If anything, it does give us new tools to build much better products. And it's kind of a silly analogy, but I was thinking of this Indiana Jones movie where there was an alien ship sitting out there and there was one crystal skull missing, why it could not take off. And they go through this whole storyline to find the skull and fit it in there. And then the ship takes off. I I kind of feel like a lot of the work and the research we're doing in this space, GPT kind of is sort of the one piece of puzzle that fits into this larger puzzle and makes it a lot more complete. And we were kind of just lucky and at the, at the right place and right time, having built the right framework around it so that it, 
it, it can fit in there and delight our customers, which which may not be the case for in general for the analytics industry. So far from being threatening, it's actually a gift for ThoughtSpot to do so much better than what we've done before. Yeah. So I like that analogy. I'm going to have to go back and watch uh, at least that part of that <laughs> Indiana Jones movie. So it sounds like you're, you are excited about it. Can you share more about what and when you'll be shipping? We've got some amazing engineers, amazing designers, amazing product managers working super hard at this problem. And what gives me both joy and heartburn is the same fact that it's still nowhere close to being a solved problem in how do you expose a completely freeform natural language interface um, for asking data questions and build a product on which you can trust and rely. And, and so, so we, we are seeing dramatic improvements and every week, every day, I see the the sort of prototype that we are building in this space get better and better and better. I'm very hopeful that in very, very new future, you'll be seeing some amazing <laughs> announcements from ThoughtSpot, but I, I wouldn't jump into the time okay. scale. Other than that, like things are getting better every week. Okay, good. Uh, well, I guess we'll have to settle for that right now. But then maybe if you take the role, um, you you work with some of the best customers, some of the brightest chief data officers in the industry, what would you tell them to pay attention to related to all these LLMs right now? I think it's it's going to be an important technology and it's going to definitely find its way in your stack one way or the other. And things are going to get significantly better over time because there's so much attention and spotlight is there on this model and, and a lot of money is flowing in, a lot of researchers are working hard to make things better. So all of these things are going to happen in terms of accuracy getting better, the models getting smaller and um, much more lightweight. In the data space, outside of the work that we are doing in, in making data more accessible, the, the most promising application I've seen of these models is kind of in the co-pilot mode where somebody who knows what they're doing and they can detect an error in what GPT is producing are able to do a lot more by essentially saving time. So that's kind of one space they could look at. The, the other thing is it, it's going to be helpful in general in um, sort of support and reducing operational overload. So if, let's say, if I am an SRE or a support engineer and I'm talking to a customer and they're running into a problem and my colleague helped another customer with a very similar problem two days ago, but I, we just haven't had time to sync. If I can sort of find what they did through an intelligent language model and retrieve that knowledge in an automated fashion, that's super helpful. And I, I see a lot of sort of savvy chief product officers and chief data officers kind of looking into that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, so not just the analytics side, yeah. but some of the support roles within the data and analytics yeah. teams. You, you've mentioned trust a couple of times. And so is this also an area where 
data leaders have to be thinking about things like synthetic data to balance out the biased mm -hmm. data? Or is it things like showing the variables and providing those feedback loops? I think you're talking about sort of either if there is an inbuilt bias in data, learning from that will basically magnify that bias furthermore. Yeah. And the couple of techniques that have been explored so far is you augment that data, not the distribution that was there in the past, which was flawed, but with the distribution that you would ideally like it to be so that our future decisions are not biased. Or you don't make decisions based on variables that might cause bias to perpetuate, whether it's gender or race or things like that, right? Um, I, yeah, I, I think absolutely the data leaders should be looking at things like that, particularly where there's significant scope for harm in making data-driven decisions where data is coming from a flawed past. In terms of application of language models, um, the, the trust and safety issue comes more from there's so much hate speech there on internet and we feed that data into these models. And so they learn some of the bad behavior demonstrated by humans. And, and so people have to figure out how, how to protect against that. And learning from human feedback was sort of one approach, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot more, much better approaches being developed by AI scientists and AI safety researchers. So do you think that's also um, a need for more transparency in terms of what data sets were used to train these models and saying, ignore all these public data sets, but then on the other end of the spectrum, that could be a limitation of free speech as well? Yeah, I think uh, I, I don't think we should leave these decisions to engineers and scientists. I think as a society, okay. we Who should... Who should we leave them to? <laughs> Uh, you're building it yeah. <laughs> you're building it so who do we need to bring to the table to make sure it's not biased and not biased at scale yeah so this this is where i think um the policy leaders need to come together with scientists because the policy leaders don't have the technical understanding the engineers and the scientists are trying to solve different class of problems for the most part in may or may not represent the entire society as a whole. So yeah, I, I think some interesting collaboration is going to be needed in future to do that. Yeah, yeah. So Amit, so much, um, so much to think about. And I like the way you've described this as a new element on the periodic table and something for all of us to think about how it changes everything. We'll include some links in the show notes of some articles you've written. We started with some lightweight lightning round questions. I want to come back to a couple. And maybe if you imagine that you were CEO for a day in a particular industry vertical, I know you have a passion for healthcare, maybe financial services. What would you tell the data team? Break the silos, I think, is probably the biggest thing that I would tell the data teams. I like that. Yeah. Okay. One word to describe chat GPT. Nascent. 
fill in the blank, 10 years from now, when we look back at this moment and the excitement around chat GPT, we will say... Early days. Okay. Fill in the blank. Data is... Power. A song that pumps you up. Sweet child of mine, Guns N' Roses. Okay. (laughs) I was going to say, are you going to go for the hardcore, the heavy metal stuff, Guns N' Roses? I would not. It just was incongruous. We were in an all hands and I think you you started playing that song. (laughs) Um, a A moment in your career when you realized you needed to make a change. Growing up, I always dreamed of becoming a professor and a scientist. And so the scientist part kind of got evolved over time to engineering. But but I wanted to go be a professor in an engineering college and do sort of more fundamental research. And um, after my PhD, I, I felt like I needed to spend some time in industry to just learn about practical problems before going back to academia. And so I was still on that path and I kind of managed for myself best of both worlds where for a while I was working at Google Pittsburgh right on CMU campus. And I was both working for Google as well as advising PhD students at CMU and so playing a little bit of role of professor. And maybe after six months of doing that, I realized that Lifelong, I wanted to be a professor, but I don't think I'm going to enjoy that if I became a professor. (laughs) I was no longer interested in writing research papers and going through the review cycle and all of that. And I was having so much more fun building large-scale systems, things that were pushing boundaries of what was done before at Google. That at, At that point, I realized that I was probably not going to try and pursue becoming a professor. And actually, that was the moment when I said to myself, the next thing I'm going to do is figure out how to start a company and build a new product. It took maybe a couple of years from then on to founding of ThoughtSpot, but that was kind of the germinating moment. Yeah. So even though your title is not professor, I think of you as a really good teacher for many of us within the company. Amit, I always like to end with a question. You can choose, depending on your mood in the moment, but either what are you most grateful for right now or something that has just made you totally laugh out loud recently? The biggest thing that I'm grateful for is my family and their support. But outside of that, I think I'm really grateful to be in the space that I work in and the time that I was born in to be able to sort of witness and participate in this rapid innovation cycle and and just go and break my head on hard problems every day. It's just so much fun. Amit, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content.
The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.